Thank you for joining us here at Brave Church. We hope our teaching inspires you. For more information about gathering times, events, and other resources, visit brave.church. Here's this week's talk. Good morning. Oh, wow. We're awake this morning. That's awesome. My name's Samuel. I'm one of the pastors here. And, you know, it's always an honor. It's always a privilege to get to share from God's word. And for those of you who have been around for the last few months, you know that we completed a teaching series through the book of Ephesians. So we were taking Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It took us several months to do it, but we learned a lot. Who enjoyed that series? It was awesome, right? We learned so much. And, you know, I just want to take a moment real quick to explain why we do that. You know, there's a lot of different approaches to teaching God's word. But one of the reasons that we prefer to primarily go through books of the Bible is what tends to happen when, when you don't is you just kind of pick your favorites, you know, your favorite topics, your favorite subjects. But when we teach through the Bible, we're confronted with things that we might not otherwise ever teach on. And so it's really healthy for us as a community. But also, sometimes when we're we're not doing that, when we're between series like today, we have an opportunity to really pray and say, God, what do you want to say to us? And that's how I feel about this passage. I realized that this is the first time this year that I've gotten to choose the passage that I want to teach on. And so that's what I'm believing today is that this really is a word for our community, and it's timely. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. It'll also be on the screen behind me. It's in your notes. But let's begin by reading this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for the Son from heaven who raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Would you pray with me? God, I just pray this morning that as we explore what you said to those people in that church, in that community thousands of years ago, that you would also speak to us. I pray that you'd open our hearts, that you'd open our eyes to see what it is so clearly that you desire to show us and that we would hear it so well and that we would leave challenged but also inspired towards the things of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Hey, who loves the Warriors? Yeah? We've got some Warriors fans in the house. A few days ago, I was in the gym. Um, I was over at 24 Hour Fitness right around the corner. And a commercial came on. 
And it was all these Warriors fans with posters, and they were putting them in the fronts of the front windows of their homes, storefronts. One guy even put a poster; he taped it to the little window of his garage door. Okay, my neighborhood actually has these posters everywhere, and these posters have the words across the front. They're in Warriors colors, and across the front they say "Authentic Fan." And there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of hype right now in the Bay Area. The Warriors are so fun to watch. We just won the NBA championship. But as, yeah, we could cheer for that, right? We're champions for a year, guys. <laughs> there we go. But I was thinking about it. The word authentic, it's a pretty strong word. What makes someone an authentic fan? I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in the Bay Area. And five years ago, I wasn't watching the Warriors. Okay, I grew up a Kings fan. My brother and I were big Sacramento Kings fans. And you know, tech brings people from all over the, uh, to the Bay Area. And I would bet not that long ago, there were probably more fans of other teams living in the Bay than there were Warriors fans. And I don't say that to offend any of you diehard locals like Mad respect for you guys, okay? But a lot of us, we're just stoked to be a part of it, okay? Um, one of my friends, his name is John, and I actually got a photo. Check out John. Um, he is a huge Warriors fan. Uh, he's actually in our, in our band. Him and his wife lead a great home church at Brave. But you see this lanyard that he's wearing. Uh, it's a Warriors lanyard and then a little stuffed animal of the mascot. And he actually nailed a nail above their door at their home. And during games, he hangs this because he thinks it's good luck. And I've seen this uh, many times. And uh, you know, what do they say? It's, it's only weird if it doesn't work, right? <laughs> so it's working. And I think he's going to keep doing that. His wife said that he has to take the nail out in the off season, but he can put it back in during the season. So, and they're renting. I don't know how that works, but... <laughs> But is John an authentic fan? What makes someone an authentic fan? Uh, I think the word authenticity really carries a lot of weight in our culture today. We really care if someone is genuine, if someone is authentic, if they're the real deal. It's like, it's like a high form of currency today. And so when I think about what makes our faith authentic? That's what I want to focus on today. You know, we, we, we can think about fans, we can think about sports, we can think about all these different things, but really at the end of the day, if you're a follower of Jesus, you want to know if your faith is authentic and what makes our faith authentic. Uh, because you come to church on Sundays, right? You're going to the games. Maybe you joined a home church, you're in a fan club. Maybe you've even been to a church conference you went to the parade, but what makes you an authentic follower of Jesus? So it's from this text that I want to preach to you today about what it means to be an authentic follower, and we're going to look at three things. One, why the gospel is the starting point. Two, what marks the transition from fan to follower? And three, how you can be sure that your faith is authentic. So before we get to these points, I want to give you a little background Paul was a church planter. So Paul's the one who wrote this text, and he was a church planter, and he went to the capital city of Macedonia, which was a northern province, which was a, a Roman province in Greece. And in AD 49, he planted a church. So he goes there, and he's preaching, and he's telling people about Jesus. He's preaching the gospel. They're coming to know God, and then he organizes them into a church. Yet 
there's immense opposition almost immediately, and he gets run out of town. He has to leave, fleeing for his life. So he's really worried because he just introduced all of these people to Jesus, and he's having to leave them so quickly. So what does he do? He sends his coworker, Timothy, to go to them. And then about a year later, from what we can tell, Timothy comes back to Paul, and he gives a report of how they're doing. And he says they're doing really well, but there's also some problems and some concerns. And so that's, uh, it's in response to that report that Paul wrote this letter. And in the first few, few verses, the ones we just read, there's a recap of how they became Christians. And as a result, the point of this passage is to answer some very important questions about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Who has the right to claim that they are a Christian? And how do you know that your faith is authentic? And so that's what we see here in this passage. And some of you, as I say that, you may be wondering, where does this put your faith? Right? Maybe you're not sure what you believe, you're new to following Jesus, or you haven't decided yet, or maybe you've been following for a long time. Maybe you grew up in church, maybe your religion was passed down to you, and you're at a point now where you're wondering, is this authentic? Is it real, or did I just inherit this? So wherever you're at in your faith journey today, you're welcome here. This is a safe place for you to be skeptical. You can ask questions. Nobody's going to be like, man, I can't believe they asked that. Like, nothing's off limits at Brave Church. This is a place where everyone can join us on this faith journey and ask those questions. So today, my hope is to invite you to explore the possibility that maybe what you know of your faith Maybe what you know of Christianity, maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's a truer sense of what it means to be an authentic follower. And if you're just checking all this out, we're excited that you're here. And this is a great morning for you um, to really know what Christianity is about. Because you don't want to decide that you're not interested in something. You don't want to decide that you don't believe something until you understand it and until you know what it is. So I believe today, I'm believing today, I've been praying for you all week, that some of you will come to know God. And that's really exciting to me. And that's my hope. That's my prayer. But also, some of you who are already Christians, you may just discover that God has more for you. Okay, so let's get into this. Number one, as we explore what it means to be an authentic follower, number one, if you're taking notes, why the gospel is the starting point. Why the gospel is the starting point. The word gospel, it shows up right away in verse 5. Right away, it talks about our gospel. It says, our gospel came to you. And if you go through the book of 1 Thessalonians, you'll see in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls it his gospel. And in 2, verse 8 and 9, it comes up twice. It's called the gospel of God. And in verse 3, it's called the gospel of Christ, the gospel. So what is the gospel? There's another word used for it in our passage. It's towards the end, and he says, that you received our message. The gospel is a message. It is a series of words. It's a series of sentences, ideas, values, bold statements, and it has content because it's a message. It's an actual message, and it is the essential core message of Christianity. So Paul's saying, you don't become an authentic follower of Jesus through the preaching of love in general, of good behavior, of good morals in general. You don't become a Christian by the preaching of great causes. You become a Christian through the gospel. But this leads us right to the question, 
How do we know that we've transitioned from fan to follower? And not just someone who has a lot of knowledge about God, but someone who knows God intimately. And being able to identify authenticity is really important. My wife and I were on vacation last month. We had an opportunity to go to France and stay with some friends that I grew up with. And so we were in southern France, and we got to minister at the church that they're a part of. And then the second half of the trip, we took a train ride up to Paris, and we, we found an Airbnb. And uh, it, was, it was a really awesome trip. But my wife, she's Mexican. I love Mexican food. And we didn't see any Mexican food in France. <laughs> like, we're looking all over. I'm like, man, I just want some tacos, OK? This food's great, but we've been here for like 12 days. And I'm craving some tacos. So we're looking around. And have you noticed the further away you get from Mexico, the harder it is to find good Mexican food? Like, seriously, when I lived in LA, everybody is easy. It's like right there on the, on the corner, right? But now when you're in NorCal, it's kind of like people have their spots, OK? You can't just assume that it's all great. So all the way over in France, what did I do? I went on Yelp. <laughs> and so I'm on Yelp, and I'm searching. And I found one spot in Paris. And it had four and a half stars. And everybody's commenting, this is so authentic. It's so good. And so I'm pumped. But my wife's a little skeptical. She's like, I don't know. We're really far away. <laughs> so I'm like, come on, babe, four and a half stars, lots of reviews. So we go, and we go in, and I'm like, see, babe, they even have Mexicans here. And she's, <laughs> and she's like, no, they're not Mexican. <laughs> so we look at the menu, and they've got three tacos. Okay, They've got vegan tacos, lamb tacos, and beef tacos. And I don't do the vegan stuff. That's my mom. She's all about it. I'm not into vegan stuff. So I ordered two beef tacos. And one lamb. I'm like, lamb? I've never tried lamb, but we'll, we'll try this on a taco. <laughs> Why not? That should have been my first sign, OK? But it wasn't. So I'm eating these tacos. And I'm like, man, this is kind of chewy. But you know, whatever. And so, so we're leaving. They weren't very good. Like, she was right. I was wrong. She's, she's having her I told you so moment. And then she says, I'm really surprised you ordered those beef tacos. And I'm like, why? And she said, that's lingua. I'm like, what's lingua? She's like, you ate tongue. <laughs> so I ate cow tongue. Authenticity matters. So does knowing what you're ordering. <laughs> Number two, what marks the transition from fan to follower, from fake to real, from inauthentic to authentic? You know that you're becoming an authentic follower when the words, the declarations of the gospel become a power. In verse 4, Paul is saying, we know you belong to God because when the gospel came to you, it didn't only come in words. Of course, it comes in words. Like I said earlier, it is a message. It has content. But it didn't come to them only in words. It became a power. It was a force in their lives. So let me put it this way. Irreligious people don't believe in the declarations and beliefs of the gospel. Religious people do. But authentic followers are in a category all to themselves. These are people that not only believe, but have experienced the power of the gospel. The gospel becomes a power in their life. And this is really important, because Paul says this in a number of places. For example, Romans 1, verse 16, it says, the gospel is the power of God. 
Notice he doesn't say it brings power. He doesn't say it results in power. He doesn't say it leads to power. He says it is the power of God. Second Corinthians 4, he tells the Corinthians, I gave you life through the gospel. Then he says in 2 Corinthians um, 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has shone into your hearts. So he calls the gospel the light of the glory of God. So what's he saying? In the beginning, when you're looking at Christianity and you come around and you think, I'm checking things out. In the very beginning, you may feel more like you're doing some research you're like, hey, I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm going to explore some things, like trying a yoga class or something, right? Like, you're just checking stuff out, trying new things. And this is often how it happens. This is how it begins. You come to church, but then you realize, well, there's more to this than I thought. And so you start talking to some people who seem to understand it. Maybe you join a home church. You go to life class. You're studying it. But the point of transition from fan to an authentic follower means that something clicks. And at some point in the process, you begin to realize you're not just investigating. Something is investigating you. You're not just investigating something. You come to a sense that something, a power, a force, is investigating you. When Paul says the gospel is a power, he means it has its own force, its own life. So what is the gospel? It's declarations, it's a message, but it's also a force, and you sense that this power is dealing with you, that it's working on your life. It's on, an authentic follower is somebody who finds these declarations and these beliefs, and the gospel is confronting them. And you can't, you can't shake the implications. You have a sense of being changed by them. You have a sense of being taken hold of, of being caught up in something that's bigger than yourself. So how does that start? Notice in verse 4, it says, we know you were chosen. Other places, Paul says, we know you were called. And, and if you've become a Christian, this means something first has come to you. If you've come to God, something's come to you. Think about this. If you love God, if you desire to love God, it's only because his love has been pursuing you. Some places, the Bible says that you were called, and as a result, that you've come. And here it says the gospel has come to you, and as a result, you've come to him. There is some power, there is something coming at you, and you can feel it in your life. Now, Christianity isn't just something that you try out. It chooses you. So for an authentic follower, at some point, you're, you start to realize that, that I'm being totally wrapped up, taken up in something, and it's rocking my world. It's, it's moving things upside down. And it starts like this. Maybe you get disturbed. You're a little caught off guard, maybe even upset. And you start asking some big questions about life. This week, I was working out with a new friend from Brave. And he told me there are two days that distinctly stand out in his life. He's been deployed seven times serving our country. And he said one was the day that he joined the military. And the second was the day that he joined the church. Okay, and he's been coming to Brave, and he said, man, I am seeing the world differently. I'm seeing my life differently. Everything is changing. And, and that's how it always begins. You have a sense that something's shaking you up, that you're not just investigating. Something is looking at you. And now, it might even feel a little unsettling, so let's unpack this a little bit. Um, it's something that we see all throughout the stories in the Bible, and it's known as the call. 
Abraham, for example, he was, he was having a great life in Ur of the Chaldees, but he heard the call to get out, to go out, and to leave his family, to leave his inheritance, to risk it all, and as a result, he became the father of our faith. Moses was having a, a really nice life as a royal person in Egypt. He was the prince of Egypt, and he was called out of that life to be an advocate for slaves, to be an advocate for his people. He started to say, instead of being comfortable, what really matters is that there is a God. And if there is a God, that's all that matters. So these people started asking some really big questions. And many of you can probably remember when you first felt called. And and you can come to being called and experiencing this call thousands of different ways. And maybe some of you are starting to realize it now. But some of the ways this happens is maybe it's prompted by an illness. Maybe it's prompted by um, something that happens in your family. Maybe it's prompted by not getting into the school you wanted to go to, by not getting the job you were hoping for. It's anything that wakes you up to the bigger narrative of life. When you say, what is my life really about? What am I really living for? And is something trying to get my attention through this? So that's how it starts. But it doesn't stop there. It eventually becomes a power bringing you to Christ, and you start to get a sense of the glory of Christ. The gospel is the glory of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm listening to a talk, and the big reveal is a word like glory, uh, I often kind of tune out a little bit. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that, but it just sounds confusing. It's a big mystery. It's like such a big word, such a big concept. Like, what does glory mean anyways? But the word glory, it's very important. It's really interesting. It actually means weight. So you know you're transitioning from fan to follower when, though you may have heard all your life that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that suddenly as you're thinking or praying or having an experience, maybe during worship, the weight of who he claims to be presses down on you and you feel it. You may say, I've, I've, I've been going to church, I've always believed Jesus is God, but if you've ever caught a glimpse of what that really means, it's heavy. It's a heavy weight. Because if he is who he says he is, you can't be halfway about him. You can't be lukewarm. You can't be one foot in, one foot out. You give up all your rights. You say, God, your will, not mine. Your will in this situation. You say, I have my will. Maybe my spouse has her will or his will. And I'm like, God, I want your will. We want your best in this situation. We surrender all of our preferences, all of our desires. We bend them to the will of God. Now, that sounds really intense. Let's unpack that a little bit. C.S. Lewis was being interviewed a long time ago on on this radio show. And he paraphrased the words of Jesus in modern English. And it's really powerful. I want to read it to you. He said, Jesus says, no one can reach ultimate reality except through me. If you try to retain rights over your own life, inevitably it will be ruined. But only if you give your life away completely to me will you be saved. If you're afraid of me, when you hear this call, I will look the other way when I come again as God without disguise. If there's anything keeping you from me, whatever it is, throw it away. If it's your eye, pluck it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. Nothing, nothing is worth losing me. 
Then he says, come to me, whatever your load, even your sin, and I will take it off you. Because I am life, I am resurrection, I am recreation. Don't be afraid. I've overcome the universe. Eat me, drink me. I'm life itself. Apart from me, there is none. And then he ends with this. He says, what are we to make of Christ? That's not the issue. The issue is entirely what does he intend to make of us? How do you know that the gospel has come to you? When you start to realize that the issue isn't, what am I going to do with Jesus? In other words, if you're still thinking of Christianity as a benefit, as a good thing to have in your life, as something to fill the void, something to make you feel better, but then you bump up against some challenging beliefs. Maybe you've thought, I can do the church thing. I like Christianity, but I'm going to drop the parts that I don't really agree with or I think might make me feel uncomfortable. I'm going to drop the parts that I could maybe lose some friends over, right? If I get too Christian, I might not be as accepted. And if you're still weighing the cost, you haven't committed. You haven't transitioned from fan to follower, And I don't say that to judge anyone. I don't say that to make anyone feel bad. I'm not trying to be a rule keeper. But at this point, if that's where you're at, the gospel has not become more than words. It is not yet the power that it should be in your life. So when it becomes power, you see the glory. I'm almost to my last point, but I just want to take some time real quick to say that If that upsets you, if it aggravates you, if it frustrates you, or even disturbs you, that's a good sign, because that means the gospel is at work in your life. Because remember, an authentic follower doesn't just know about God, they know God intimately. And when you know who God is, the gospel becomes more than words. You can feel it. It becomes a force, something that compels you. So number three, how can you be sure that your faith is authentic? You know you're becoming a Christian through the gospel when you start to see the things that can't save you. Look at verse 10. This is is the summary of the gospel right here. This is the gospel in words. It says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Maybe you've heard this. And maybe you believe this, but when it really becomes a power, it completely alters the way you see the differences between the life of Jesus and the life you're living. And to most people, until the reality of the gospel really connects, until it clicks and it becomes a power, they think their options are are one of two things. Either I can control my life and be free, or I can turn over the control to Jesus. And growing up, I remember thinking about it this way and thinking, you know, we're really missing out on a lot of fun. Like, like Christians, we're really giving up a lot. We don't, we don't get to do what everybody else is doing in some circumstances. And then I had friends that their perspective was, well, Christianity looks good, but I'm going to get to that later in life, right? What I'm doing, it's working for me now. I'll consider that later. Um, and a lot of this thinking stems from how we talk about becoming a Christian, what it means to become a Christian. Uh, I've heard so many altar call moments, opportunities to come forward, to receive Christ, to raise your hand, camps, events, all of that. 
And those are good things, good opportunities, powerful. But often the prayer in those moments goes like this. It's not enough just to believe Jesus died for you. You have to ask Jesus into your heart. You have to surrender your life. You have to stop living selfishly. You have to say, Lord, come into my life. I'm living for you now. I'm sorry for living selfishly. Please forgive me like only you can. And that's partly true, but it's a little misleading. Because when the gospel hits you and it begins to clarify life, it starts to show you something. There's a shift. And here's where it gets really interesting. Okay, when I'm preparing to teach, I study and I read commentaries and I read, you know, the only way for us to even understand today what was happening thousands of years ago, a Bible and a book that was written in a different language to make sense of that for today and how to live it out is to read, read books that people have written that help us to bridge those gaps. And so when we get to verse 10, there's a little bit of a problem for most commentators because it says, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for the one who will rescue you from the wrath to come. And the reason it's a problem is if you go to the book of Acts, chapter 17, you'll see the Christians in the first church at Thessalonica were different from the Christians in Corinth. The new Corinthian Christians were converted out of paganism. So they actually worshipped idols. But the new Christians from Thessalonica had been converted either from Judaism as Jews or Gentiles who were in fact worshiping the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. So they weren't idol worshipers. Yet Paul says you turned from idols. So why does he say this? What Paul says here is what Paul says to everyone everywhere. The gospel says to everyone in this room and everyone on earth that there is a sense of coming judgment and that you may believe you're an enlightened person and you're not sure if you believe in God, but maybe you're like, I certainly don't believe in judgment. I don't believe in the existence of hell. Yet all of us have a sense of condemnation. There's a voice in all of us that tells us that we're not good enough, that we're not smart enough, that we're, not, that we're failures, and we're all trying to do something about that voice. And with some of us, it's very loud a rough background in our lives or things that have happened to us, things that were not right, have raised the volume on that voice. But they're not the cause of that voice. See, we all have a sense of this judgment to come. We all have a sense that something is wrong with us. We all have a sense that we need to prove ourselves. Everyone has it. And as a result, we look to something to rescue us. But when Paul says you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the one from heaven who rescues you, Jesus Christ, he's saying there's another way. He's saying life without Jesus is to find some other salvation, something else that will rescue you from the wrath to come. And whatever you find your salvation in, it's what you serve. It becomes your master. And it can come in so many different forms. It can come as a career, a relationship, an ideal, a lot of money, an achievement. And whatever we use to try to save ourselves, to try to rid ourselves of this sense of condemnation, to try to silence the voice, it's an attempt to turn to something 
as our rescue. And for most of us, whatever it is, it becomes a driving force our entire lives. I can try to save myself, or I can turn to Jesus, the only one who can rescue me from this wrath. So Christianity, it's not about losing your freedom. That's the good news. The gospel says you can either be a slave to whatever you're using to try to rescue yourself, and it's going to drive you straight into the ground, or you can turn to Jesus, the one who took the wrath and has proven himself capable of saving you from it. So consider this. Anything that you can think of that if you were to lose, your life would feel less meaningful, that you would lose hope. Consider your emotions. Consider what worries you. Consider what are you afraid of? What are you bitter? What are you bothered by? What makes you angry? And follow that trail of emotion. And what does it lead you to? It leads you to the things that you're trusting in to save you, the things that you fear losing the most. And the gospel doesn't show you that you can have freedom or Christ. The gospel shows you that you can have slavery or Christ. And those are the only two alternatives. When we see that, the gospel, it makes so much sense, and it's liberating. That Jesus is the solution for our struggles to feel okay. It's, not, uh, it's because of him that we can let go of this fear. We can let go of our worry, our anxiety, our bitterness, our rage. Nothing needs to be controlled, taken, or protected. So in closing, what is an authentic follower? The gospel says this. It says, turn to the Father and say, Father, I see that I've been trying to keep control of my life by trying to be my own savior, by looking to other things to save me. But now I see that I'll never lose that sense of condemnation unless I see that Jesus Christ, your son, lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died. So please accept me now because of what he's done. And that's the master that won't dictate over you, that won't take advantage of you, that has, always has your best interests in mind. That's perfect freedom. No achievement will ever be enough to save you. No person will ever complete you. No parent will ever meet all of your expectations. So some of you, you may be thinking, I've been following Jesus for some time, but why hasn't this clicked for me? Why haven't I felt or experienced what you're describing? I see that others do, but what about me? We all have to look at our idols. We have to see them for what they are, the things that we're holding on to that are getting in the way of allowing us to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. So whatever you're holding on to, whatever you're afraid to let go of, let the love of Jesus begin to show you a better way. As we close this morning, we're going to receive communion. And another way of saying that is coming to the Lord's table. And this is one of the most important rituals that we do. And it's a symbolic act that serves as a reminder of this very thing that we've been talking about, to remember what was done for us to remember the implications of Jesus Christ in our lives, his sacrifice, what that means, what we get to share in, the salvation he offers. So if you'll bow your heads and join me, I want to pray before we transition into this time of communion together. Father, we thank you that at this place, at your table, we can meet you. Lord, there are some people here 
who maybe have never understood what it means to be a Christian. And I pray that you would help them today to see that they are chosen by you, that you're calling them, that you, that you accept them, that when they say, God, accept me for what your son has done, to see, to see the only alternative to serving you is slavery to false rescuers, to things that can never save me, that can never silence that voice that I so desperately want to be rid of. Father, I also pray for those of us who today have to realize that to a great degree, we still need to let go of some idols, and that we need to serve and wait on you alone. Help us to know the joy of those who have let go of their idols and have allowed you to be all that you desire to be in our lives.